Welcome to Fundamentals of Canadian Law. I'm Matt Shepard, and hey, have you seen my coat? I know I wore it in here. I, oh man, someone's stolen my coat. This happens a lot. It happens especially in the winter and especially to students. But when it happens and you're out and about, what does that mean? If someone steals your stuff while you're at a restaurant or at a club, did that establishment have a duty to look after your belongings? We brought in two people to help us answer that exact question. Morgan Jarvis is the academic director of the Certificate in Law program and also the architect of a new version of our Introduction to Canadian Law course starting this May. Christian Hurley teaches Law 204-704, Corporate Law, and is bringing his expertise in contracts to the table. It may be worth mentioning that this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice. This podcast is brought to you by the Queen's Certificate in Law, the only online certificate in law offered by a law faculty in Canada. You can find out more at takelaw.ca. Let's see if we can find my coat, or at least find some answers. We'll start with Morgan Jarvis. Someone goes out for the night. They're, they're enjoying an, a very responsible evening out on the town, uh, and they leave their coat somewhere in the establishment, and at some point in the night their coat is stolen. And this seems to be almost a rite of passage for university students. It happens a lot in campuses all over the country. I'd imagine campuses all over the world. So there's just kind of a broad question here about, is there anything that is the establishment's responsibility when it comes to things like people's stuff getting stolen when they're, when they're out for the night? Yes, it, it, it is certainly a problem. And I was, you know, I was surprised that there weren't more cases of this. But of course, you have to remember that the law is only worth as much as, as you are financially. And of course, a coat check, nobody's going to bother going to court over their their coat unless it's a fur coat so i did actually find a case uh, about a fur coat disappearing from a a coat check situation but before we go that down that road it's worth kind of thinking about because you you mentioned the uh, the different ways that your coat might go missing because that what is kind of what it all it all hinges on if the coat is in your still in within your possession so you're in the bar whatever the coat's maybe on a coat hook behind you or it's on your chair and it goes missing. It's probably your, your, your problem. You know, you didn't do what you could have done to keep your coat safe. But then we get into a bit of another situation where there's the coat check or there's somewhere provided by the establishment that you're in, which is the, sort, of, sort of an invitation to hang your coats here. Like there's a restaurant downtown in Kingston that I go to a lot. And in thinking about this, I realized why they do this. They have the coat rack right in front of the uh, bar reception area. So there's always a staff person there watching that coat rack. Um, so it would, be, it would be difficult for somebody to come in there and steal everybody's coats. So if, if we can just take a quick step back, just to sort of put a pin in the first point. If there's no place to put your coat, if there's no sort of obvious area where there's any kind of implication that your coat's going to be safe, that's on you. At that point, your stuff is your responsibility. That's, that's my thinking. Um, I haven't, obviously haven't spent a huge amount of time. If you, were, <laughs> if right. you were really going to court on this, I'm sure you would be able to argue. They would be able to find ways to argue that an establishment would still, because what it comes down to, what I'm going to get to, is it comes down to, is there a duty of care? You know, does the establishment, uh, it, it's, it's that torts concept through negligence, 
does the establishment owe you a duty to look after your belongings? And I think normally the answer would be, would be not uh, in, in the situation where the coat is, is with you. And so, yeah, it might be smart for them to not provide an option um, to store your coat because then they're kind of taking on the responsibility of, of looking after it. Right. Where they make you just keep it. Right. Uh, arguably, I'm sure someone would, would, uh, who would put more thought into it and make a, a case otherwise, but that's kind of where I'm thinking. So this notion of duty of care, this is a legal term that's basically right. someone's responsibility toward you. Yeah. Especially in the context of torts, which is what basically people suing each other. That exactly. So, so, and in this case, so if they've offered a, a way f- to look after the, your, your belongings, um, then it gets in this concept with this old English common law concept of bailment and it, it still applies. And it's, it's like when you drop your clothes off at the dry cleaner or your car at the mechanic, or you, you check your coat at a coat check, you're handing over possession of your belongings for a, under a certain understanding, there's a service they're going to provide. Um, they're just supposed, they're supposed to look after your things and provide them back to you in the same condition as you left them or, you know, better if it's a, a repair or cleaning situation. There's kind of this, this, this bit of a contract around that, I guess. And then, so there's this duty of care then, uh, when you look at it from a negligence perspective, like are they've, they've put themselves out to look after your stuff for a period of time. And then if they're negligent in doing that and your stuff goes missing, then they could be responsible for it, whether it's, it's a paid coat check or not. And, and there were some, some fun cases of different situations around that. And, and, the one I ended up just finding at the top of the results when I searched was actually a, it was an employee of a restaurant and they'd been providing, she had a, this lovely fur coat. Um, it was $1,200 $1, in 1980. So it's, uh, you know, in today's dollars, it'd be a fair bit more. So it was, it was worth going to court for, I guess. And they had been providing storage for their secure storage for their employees belongings. And then, and you know, nothing went missing. And then they changed to this less secure shared lockers and all of a sudden, this, this staff lady left her fur coat like usual, of course, in February in Saskatchewan, and it went missing. So then she's suing for it. And it was because they'd, they, they had this so that they'd kind of done the reasonable thing of providing secure storage for a while um, in, in this bail, bailment situation where they're looking after, they are you know, providing some safekeeping um, for the people's belongings. And then they went to unsecure, and then they, they're, they were negligent. They breached their their duty of care and the standard of care and they had to pay damages to this lady for her lost coat and her uh and her car keys and then one of the cases that they cited was another case of a patron to a restaurant where and that was the analogy of um if the gentleman had brought the coat with him to the table and hung it on a hook right beside him then maybe he would have been responsible for it but because he had hung it on the hook at the front that was provided for him by the restaurant uh, you know, an invitation to hang your coat here, suggesting we'll look after it for you, then the restaurant was responsible for it. So there's, um, there's, there's a few ideas here. One is bailment, which is a term in property law, which is basically that the temporary surrendering of something on the condition that you're supposed to get it back in the same condition. And then there's duty of care, which seems to come into play more in torts, in which uh, if you have a duty of care and you don't provide it, you're being negligent, which basically means you're responsible. Yeah, well, so it, op- it opens, the, they're all kind of connected. It's a, little, it's a little bit difficult to pull them apart because you're, that, that bailment situation then kind of contractually puts you in a position where you can be held responsible if you're negligent. And so, so contracts, which Christian will get into, are often 
often worded so that um, they're contemplating not only breach of contract, and you could have a bit of a contract around this too, um, and then there'd be a breach of contract action, but there's also, if you go down the negligence side, it's not so much about the contract, it's just that you put yourself through this contractual relationship, you kind of said you're going to look after stuff and then you didn't, so then you're negligent. So you can go down the, a couple different routes from this, this bailment relationship. Uh, just to sort of go off on a quick tangent, uh, on an earlier podcast, we did cover how people can look stuff up on Canley mm-hmm. and find their own cases. Uh, so if people wanted to find this case, this specific case on Canley, they can look it up and they can read this themselves. Right? Yeah, I, I literally went to canley.org. I typed in coat check. Right. And the, the first result, because um, I wasn't going to spend more time going through them, so I was lucky the first result was this case of a fur coat went missing in a restaurant. <laughs> and that's a Tremor and a Park Motor Hotels? Parktown Motor Hotels. Okay. Uh, from, yeah, Saskatchewan, Court of Queen's Bench, I think in the 1980s. So yeah. is, is this a good time to switch? And uh, Christian, can yeah. talk to us a bit about contracts? Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, we've sort of, I guess, Morgan's talked about the situation where you go in, there's a bailment, you pass your coat off to the venue. On my side, I'm thinking of a situation that's more akin to a traditional coat check. So most people have gone through this process. Um, you enter into a venue, uh, you hand your coat over to the clerk, you tender payment if required, and you're given a ticket uh, with a number on it that'll help identify the coat at the end of the night. So from my perspective, I guess we're trying to see whether or not the venue can do anything to limit or exclude their liability for lost or damaged items that are handed to their possession. To start off, it's, it's fair to say there's nothing inherently offensive about clauses that seek to limit or exclude uh, the liability of a party to a contract. These types of clauses appear quite commonly, uh, but definitely not exclusively in standard form contracts. So the traditional code check falls under a, a category of standard form contracts. And uh, when we were studying back in, in contracts 101, we called them ticket cases. Ticket cases, uh, they're one of the earliest uses of a standard form contract. Uh, they arose in situations where uh, business people were engaging in uh, many different transactions in a short period of time. Uh, and typically, these would be uh, you know, contracts for carriage, uh, so you know, a, a taxi or a ride, uh, or situations like a co-check, which would be a bailment. So there were people who were willing to do business on a fixed set of terms. And they didn't have the desire to negotiate the terms of each individual contract. Uh, you know, customers, on the other hand, they rarely gave the matters much thought. They were either too, too rushed to negotiate the terms or they weren't concerned enough to object to the terms that were insisted upon. Uh, or maybe it was just such that, you know, they were uh, passive as a result of the fact that they said, you know, the party that we're dealing with, they're not going to vary these terms. Uh, these terms are the terms that are, are typically insisted upon by businesses in a similar line of work. You know, it's, it's essentially a take it or leave it situation. And you know what, that's beneficial for both sides because, you know, you can think about when you're going to a bar and you're looking to get your code of the co-check, that line moves all too slow. You know, you're there long enough. You just want to get up there and hand your code over. You can imagine the, uh, the nightmare that will result if, you know, you get to the front and all of a sudden you're trying to hash out very specific terms about how your code is to be handled the co-check clerk you know so i mean it's it's rather absurd so these contracts uh you know they're formed quickly casually there's no real discussion of terms a ticket is handed over Uh, it may have a brief set of terms on the back or maybe it will incorporate some 
uh, terms by reference. Maybe it, it might advise the customer to, you know, please see notice uh, posted in the premises. So that's typically what happens. So I guess what we need to look at is try to understand how these uh, exclusionary or limitation clauses that may be found on a sign or on a ticket that you're given are treated in Canadian law. So, you know, the first is, does the clause apply at all? Was the clause effectively included as a term of the contract that you've entered into? Most often, this will turn on whether or not the clause was brought to the attention of the contracting party that's now challenging the clause. So if I'm passing over my code to you, was I properly advised, was I notified that there are terms limiting or excluding liability of the venue with respect to my property that I'm now passing over to them? I guess the courts have typically said that the more unusual or onerous a clause is, uh, then the more steps that need to be taken to bring the attention uh, of the party to those clauses. So you can see that in operation, you know, anytime you look at a typical standard form contract, so, you know, pick up a terms of use for a product or service that you're dealing with and, and read through, and nobody does this, lawyers included. But read on down through, and uh, inevitably you're going to get to a section that deals with liability. And all of a sudden you'll see that the font will switch from, you know, maybe a, a standard small font, and all of a sudden the, the font is capitalized and it's bolded and it's underlined. And what's happening here is if that's reflecting the effort uh, of the party who's drafted this contract. It's reflecting their effort in trying to bring the attention of the other party to the language in this uh, contract because they view it as unusual, as onerous. So in the case of a co-check ticket, you know, I don't know uh, most co-check tickets that I see, I get them, there's a number on the front, full stop, the end. In doing a little bit of looking into this, I've, I've come across a few cases where, you know, on the back of a ticket, there might be a couple of short clauses purporting to limit liability. But, you know, for the, the typical person who's passing the, the code over, they look at these tickets simply as proof that I've given you my coat and the number is going to help you in finding it in that closet in the back there. We're not typically expecting, you know, contractual language to be included on the back uh, of the ticket. So there needs to be something done by the venue to really make that obvious. Switch it from the situation where we've got the ticket uh, with a notice to perhaps there's a sign close to the code check that advises of the fee for service. So, I mean, say, uh, what if the sign also clearly stated that the venue is not responsible for lost or stolen items? Well, you know, maybe it can be argued in this instance that the clause was sufficiently brought to the attention of the customer prior to the contract being entered into, which would satisfy the notice requirement. Because, again, you think about the process uh, of how the contract was entered into. When I approach the code check, I pay my money, I pass over my code, I receive the ticket. If I've paid my money, if I've given the code, and, you know, there are terms on the back of that ticket that I don't see till after the fact, have I sufficiently been notified uh, up front of these exclusionary uh, clauses? And, you know, maybe I'd suggest that, no, I haven't. So it would probably be a good idea if I'm the venue to take extra steps to notify the customer that, uh, that there is uh, a limitation of liability or an exclusion of liability uh, that applies to this particular situation. You know, if, if at the end of the day we've determined that the clause does apply, then how should it be interpreted?
we're trying to determine what the clause actually means. And in you know Canadian common law limitation or exclusion clauses, they're narrowly interpreted. And sort of any ambiguity in the language is going to be construed against the party who drafted the language. So uh, you know this is justified in a couple of different ways. The first is that the party who's drafting the language had the opportunity to ensure that the wording was clear. And second, you know, now you're seeking to take away some of the benefit of a contract that would otherwise extend to me, the customer who's challenging the clause. You know, for example, if the establishment had a sign at the entry that stated, all personal property here is at the risk of the patron. This is as I walk in the door, say, to the bar. Is that sufficient to you know, limit or exclude liability if there's not a similar notice posted near or around the co-check? You know, if, if I was the customer, I would state, no, it's a little bit ambiguous. I would think that sign as I'm entering the venue, you know, that's going to apply to situations where I'm not, you know, conveying possession of my property to you, the venue. That's where I'm going to retain it. Maybe I've laid it on the chair next to me or I've, I've hung it on a hook somewhere. But, you know, if, if I go down to the coat check and all of a sudden I'm paying for a service, I'm paying for somebody to watch my coat. If there's no notice posted there, there's nothing on the ticket uh, that would purport to sort of limit that liability. Is it a reasonable interpretation that limitation exclusion doesn't apply in that situation? And I'd suggest that there's an argument to be made. So, you know, subject to or uh, pursuant to the doctrine of contra proferentum, then, you know, you could make an argument that that ambiguity should be construed against the venue which drafted that language. And finally, you know, you can look to see, you know, are there any reasons of public policy that would motivate a court to strike down uh, the applicability of that clause? And courts have uh, time again shown they're unwilling to allow a party to rely on an exclusion clause where it's not merited. So if the party doesn't take reasonable steps or there's sharp dealing, so if I pass my coat to the coat check clerk and, you know, they just throw it in a pile, you know, and they, they can't see where it is, it's out of their line of sight. Uh, it's easily accessed by, you know, other patrons of the venue, then, you know, you could make an argument that they're not taking reasonable steps that would be expected of the venue uh, in those circumstances to properly care for uh, the customer's possession. So in, in that case, the court may choose to, you know, not uphold uh, the exclusion or limitation clause. But, you know, from a public policy perspective, these clauses are, are, are pretty legitimate. I mean, you think about if I'm passing my code to you, you're typically paying a very modest amount. On the other side of that, the benefit that I should be realizing from that is it's pretty modest. It would be pretty unfair if I was to pass a coat over to a venue and, you know, I had it stuffed with, with diamonds and Rolex watches and I gave it to the co-check clerk and gave my, my $2. And when I came back at the end of the day, uh, it's missing. And now I'm trying to claim thousands and thousands of dollars. It's not within the reasonable and uh, expectation of the parties entering into the contract. So, you know, if the fee is modest, uh, then it's reasonable for people, uh, I think, to come to the conclusion that the risk assumed by the venue should also be modest. And, you know, otherwise, they have to really charge a ludicrous amount for what's really a modest service. And, you know, that would really be to the detriment, not only of the venue, but also to the public who are looking to avail of those services as well. So, you know, at the end of the day, the, the person who's passing possession of the coat over to the coach check still has the ability, notwithstanding the limitation clauses, to sue for the contract price 
So if we say that, you know, this, this clause uh, is valid and it, it can be upheld, there is still a, uh, a remedy available, though, you know, given the amount you're paying to have your code stored, uh, that contract price is going to be pretty modest. So you're probably not likely to come across any case law on that point uh, as you did with the fur code in Saskatchewan. Right. So, I mean, I feel like I should probably mention at this point, none of this is legal advice, nor should it be construed as such. Uh, this is just general information. At the end of the day, venues should exercise some caution in kind of protecting themselves by making sure there's language around the limitations of what the code check service is going to do. But by and large, it's not prudent for a consumer to ever expect that there would be recompense if their stuff is stolen, period, code check or no. Yeah, I mean, I, I think from, from the venue's perspective, they need to get out in front of it. They need to properly notify the public what it is we're offering and what it is we're, we're not agreeing to. And, you know, if, if that's clear and, and makes sense from, from every party's perspective, then, you know, you, you get what you bargain for at the end of the day. Right. Yeah, and I guess I just go back to my original point that, like anything, unless you've got 10000 in your pocket for legal fees, you, you may as well um, not not really expect to be able to exploit the law to your benefit, regardless of what it what we've concluded today. Right. <laughs> uh, so I, I guess the burning question for me is, it seems like other than kind of it's a nice service, and I guess there's some small marketing value in terms of sort of being the kind of establishment that has that service, it seems like for the venues, co-checks are nothing but trouble. I mean, they, yeah, they, I would say they are kind of putting them, putting themselves out there to, um, um, but but at, at the same time, like this this case that I was looking at, it kind of discusses it is part of the the business uh, transaction that they're offering. They want customers to come to their venue, something they they choose to offer as an as an attractive incentive to um, attract customers. Is we're going to look after your coat if you come and and spend time here in the winter. So it, I think it does need to be like any business calculation or any. Yeah, any any business venture, there needs to be calculations of your risks and liabilities um, versus the cost and revenue, including, of course, the the legal risks. And um, I was finding art articles in in the states. I'm, I'm sure in Canada too. Businesses can buy coat check insurance, so so that's one way you can mitigate your risk. You're you knowingly taking on some risk, and you buy insurance to, to back it up, and you try and do your do your best to to minimize where you might fail and be exposed to liability and the consequences and you might buy some insurance to just for that extra protection and and and, and hope they'll pay out when they're asked to but the key, the key advice to consumers here is do not stuff your coat with diamonds and rolex yeah it's probably not a good idea that's the important <laughs> takeaway and, and you know it's worth <laughs> noting too that there's a bit of a difference between risk and liability so sure there might be some liability on the part of the venue in accepting and caring for the customer's coat but at the end of the day what's the true risk and you can see by the sort of lack of availability of ready case law on the subject, there's not many people who are going to be willing to take a, an establishment to court, you know, mm -hmm. to, have, to have my old SERP style windbreaker returned. So, you know, maybe the risk isn't really there, but there's certainly liability to think about. All right, Morgan, uh, <laughs> academic director of the Certificate in Law and the developer of law, the, the new version of Law 201 coming out this summer and the director of the Queen's Business Law Clinic and Christian, uh, instructor of our Law 204-704 Corporate Law Course in the Certificate of Law. Uh, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks to Morgan and Christian. 
You can check out Introduction to Canadian Law, Law 201701, and Corporate Law, Law 204704, at takelaw.ca. Fundamentals of Canadian Law is recorded at Queen's University, situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Our theme music is by Megan Hamilton, who is also a staff member here at Queen's Law. You can find out more about her music at meganhamiltonmusic.wordpress.com. Original illustrations for this podcast are by Valerie Desrochers. You can find her work at vdesrochers.com. Thanks for listening.